Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Ladies and gents, welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. Hope you guys are having a great day. We have got a great episode for you today. Uh, Another Rewind episode bringing together highlights from six world-leading experts from previous seasons and episodes. And this time, we're talking weight loss and body composition. As we head into spring and clients and coaches and athletes start thinking about losing weight and, of course, kicking up training to improve body composition. In this episode, you're going to hear from Dr. Stefan Guianet, who talks about food environment, lessons learned from the Cantavans, and insights from the cafeteria diet. Renowned sport nutritionist Dr. Susan Kleiner will talk about why it's so difficult for folks to maintain successful weight loss over the course of a year, as well as specific applications for weight loss in females. Dr. Nicola Guess, diabetes expert, We'll then talk about the fundamental importance of weight loss in managing and reversing prediabetes and diabetes, as well as two root causes, and why, it's, and why choice is so important actually in implementing uh, solutions. Terrific. Then Dr. Javier Gonzalez shares the latest evidence-based insights on whether skipping breakfast really confers benefits for weight loss and all the nuances and the trickle-down effects on energy expenditure. From there, Dr. Eric Helms shares insights on realistic weekly and monthly weight loss targets, and really how far off these evidence-based targets are from what our clients expect and the unrealistic expectations, how they really set folks up for, uh, for failure. So really terrific insights there. And finally, Wrapping things out, Dr. Trent Stellingworth will talk about body composition periodization, how elite athletes get lean for competition, and then regress to support overall health between training peaks. So really fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, Loads of insights here. Knowledge bombs dropped all across the episode, so get your pen and paper ready. And remember, if you enjoy this content, these experts and many more like them are covered in my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. And of course, that is available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, local book retailers. And again, if you're enjoying the podcast, then this book is definitely something that I think you're going to love as well, all about connecting you with leading experts on the front lines in performance from around the world. And of course, we're also giving away some cool swag as well for any pre-orders you can check that out at drbubs.com forward slash peak and just email us at info at drbubs.com for your chance to win fantastic as usual you can link to the original episodes and the notes in the podcast summary at drbubs.com forward slash podcast and lastly a quick word from this episode sponsor totem sport totem sport is the world's only 100 natural supplement no sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. <clears throat> Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season 3, Episode 15, Rewind the Tapes, Body Composition and Weight Loss. Enjoy. Your new book, The Hungry Brain, you do such a phenomenal job of, of going into great detail about the, the role and mechanisms of the brain, but you also provide these wonderful you know, anecdotes and metaphors. And of course, you kick the book off with the story of a, 
of a guy named Utala who's from originally from Catawba, a small island off the coast of New Guinea. And it's it's noteworthy because, as you mentioned in the book, the Catawbans are notoriously healthy, lean, and you know free of chronic diseases. Uh, yet, as you mentioned, to kick things off in your book, Utala is about 50 pounds heavier than everybody else on the island. So can you um, enlighten the listeners with, with generally what's going on there and how that sets things up in the book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is the research of Stefan Lindberg, um, who, who was a researcher at the University of Lund in Sweden. And he was a guy who was really inspired by um, some of the original um, grandfathers of the paleo movement, like um, Boyd Eaton and Melvin Connor. And he, so a lot of the, a lot of the people in the paleo movement, um, there are very few people who, you know, a lot of people talk about non-industrial cultures, but there are very few people who have actually gone out and studied non-industrial cultures yep. in that community. And he's one of the few people who has actually gone out and done it. So he was, he was so inspired by this stuff that he decided that he was going to go study this culture that had scarcely been touched by industrialization. And they, they weren't actually hunter gatherers. So Stefan was really interested in the paleo diet. These people were not actually hunter gatherers, but they did eat in a manner that was kind of broadly consistent with our conception, with the common conception of the paleo diet, which is to say that they didn't eat grains, they didn't eat dairy, they didn't eat processed foods, um, they didn't eat any kind of agricultural foods, beans. Actually, they ate very little of it. Let's let's put it that way. And um, so, yeah, he went to this island, Catawba, and there is no obesity. There is no detectable cardiovascular disease, no detectable diabetes. These people, by all measures, are far healthier than any population you could find in the United States or in any industrialized nation. Um, they just do not suffer from the so-called diseases of civilization, which are the things that pop up when cultures become sedentary and affluent and you know, their diet changes and all that. And so, interestingly, on his study, on the, during the course of the Catawba study, he actually did identify one person who was almost obese. He was kind of on the cusp of having obesity um, with abdominal, uh, a lot of ab abdominal fat, so he had a big belly. <clears throat> and this man also had the highest blood pressure of anyone, highest blood pressure, highest ratio of anyone on the island by far like he was a, just an outlier he's 50 pounds heavier than the average Catawban man of his height and it turns out that he actually was not a permanent resident of Catawba he was just visiting he was a person a, a Catawban who had left the island to go work as a businessman in Papua New Guinea and so essentially what that shows is that it's not like the Catavans are some kind of, you know, genetic freaks that can eat whatever they want and stay exactly. lean. What it actually is, is that just like all other cultures, all other populations around the world, they're lean and healthy when they're eating a traditional diet. And then when they go to a um, modern industrialized diet, they develop bodies and they develop physiologies that are very similar to the ones that are prevalent in industrialized sedentary societies such as the United States. And so I, I thought, I thought that was a, a pretty striking illustration of that concept. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. And I mean, you know, you, you talk about various statistics as well. And, you know, in the 1960s, one out of 111 people being classified as very obese, whereas fast forward 50 years to 2010, and we're into one out of every sevens very obese. Um, and you touch on an interesting study, um, in the 1970s are effectively how we feed mice to really gain weight. Can you tell us a bit about the cafeteria diet and some of the insights that's led to? Oh yeah. I think, I think this is really interesting. And I, I think this is just a very basic fundamental observation that um, I keep coming back to because it's so important. So um, the more I've learned about rodent research and, and just to, to clarify for, for the audience, um, my, Obesity research was primarily in rodents. We also did some human work, but primarily in rodents. And the more I've learned about rodents, 
the more I've actually come to believe that rats in particular are not as different from us <laughs> as we would like to believe they are. Um, there are a lot of really striking similarities in terms of how their brains are set up, how their brains are wired, how their brains communicate, um, and in terms of their physiology. And that doesn't necessarily mean all rodent research translates automatically to humans, but I think that in terms of just the basic functioning of the brain and how it interacts with food and things like that, I think, I think there's actually a lot of similarities. Um, so back in the 19, I believe it was the late 1960s, a guy named Anthony Sclafani was a graduate student and he was trying to make rats obese. At the time, um, people, you know, this was before the obesity epidemic, but there was still obesity around and people were trying to understand it and they were trying to develop good rodent models for obesity. And so they would just the most common thing to do was to add fat to the rat food and then they would kind of slowly gain fat and eventually some of them would become obese. But it was not a very rapid or efficient or strategy. And so they were looking for something better. So one day, Anthony Scalfani had, this, this was back in the day where I think things were a little less regulated. Working with animals was a little kind of uh, less uh, scrutinized and regulated than it is today. But Sounds like it, yeah. he had a rat. There was a rat that was um, on his lab bench, and it happened to come across a bowl of Fruit Loops that one of his fellow graduate students had put there. And rats are normally very wary of unfamiliar foods, and so they, they don't usually do anything but just kind of sniff or nibble something they've never seen before. But the rat went over to the Fruit Loops and just started completely stuffing its face. <laughs> and yeah, and it, this this is pretty pretty unusual for a rat. And so this gave Sclafani this idea of, well, maybe I should just if I want to make these rats fat, maybe I should just feed them human foods. Maybe I should just go out, get palat highly palatable, processed, calorie dense human foods, and put a bunch of it in their cages and see what happens. And it turns out that this diet, which he originally called the, um, what was it, the uh, supermarket diet, but later um, the more common name for it now is the cafeteria diet, they just absolutely gorge and become super obese. And there's no other diet that you can feed them, not a diet high in sugar, not a diet high in fat, not a, high, not a diet high in sugar and fat. There's no other diet that you can give a normal rodent that will make it eat more or develop obesity more quickly than feeding it palatable processed human food. So I think this is a pretty striking observation. I mean, there's, I mean, this is the most fattening food, human food, the stuff that we eat every day is the most fattening thing you can possibly give to a rodent. To kick things off, perhaps we can talk a little bit about this fact that 9 out of 10 people who lose weight will actually fail to keep it off after a year. So what do you think is going on in the world around us, in the environment that's contributing to this inability for people to maintain a healthy body composition? You know, it's such a good question, and, and I, I'm not going to you know, be so bold as to actually have the answer, but one of the big things is, is that we are really expert at going on diets to go off of them. Yep. And maintenance has not been a focus. And so we um, go on, you know, big wish, big dream, big goal, um, highly restricted diets usually, and they aren't possible to maintain. They aren't designed for long-term. And typically, we are not feeding ourselves or fueling ourselves well enough to then maintain a healthy lifestyle over a long period of time. So, so they're diets that we create to go on and then go off. And you go off and you haven't developed 
a lifelong plan. And so, so that's, that's, I'd say one big part of the problem. Absolutely. A lifestyle is such a key component of this whole piece. And, you know, for yourself and working with so many, um, women, athletic women, general population, what are some of the, the major hurdles, um, whether it's in terms of their nutrition or, or activity that, that create this issue with being able to consistently lose weight and hold it off? Um, the, sort of the real gut understanding that this is a long-term process. And, you know, if you've made a decision that you want to drop 10 pounds for an upcoming event, okay, then, then we have that strategy. Um, but if it's the rare time when I actually work on that kind of, uh, you know, like I'm having, uh, you know, a cruise coming up or a wedding or something, we're usually looking at long-term strategies. And so always starting in the off season, um, and, and knowing that we're set up for months and months of, um, slow body composition change and at the same time working really hard on habit changes because just sort of cutting things out that don't change your regular daily habits and working on those behavior change strategies are really important and also making sure that we are fueling your day, including fueling your training. And so the biggest problem with women, especially women who challenge themselves athletically, is that our bodies will preferentially fuel our high-intensity energy demand. And so we can do our sport, but the rest of our body starts to fall apart because we are not fueling our foundational health needs. And that's where things start to sort of drain and you, you fall back on old habits because you're so tired. And if you're really, you know, serious about that level of control, your body starts to break down. Yeah. And specific to women, you know, what are some of those repercussions when we talk about, you know, excessive or prolonged caloric restriction, a lot of the, you know, the fad diets in terms of health or hormonal balance? Right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, our reproductive system, which is controls the top of the pyramid of our peripheral metabolic pathway, our, our reproductive hormones are integrally linked to our energy metabolism. And when uh, we don't have enough energy available, which is, um, as I said, many young athletes in particular in their, you know, from their teens to their, you know, until about 30, they can push through low energy availability and, they're fueling their sport, but they're not fueling their reproductive systems. They're not fueling bone mineral metabolism. They're not fueling their even their brains, their cardiovascular system, um, um, protein, uh, you know, and tissue building, and all of that recovery system. As that starts to break down, first thing, first thing that most women notice is that they lose their periods or their periods become irregular and that's not normal and it's not good and in fact in studies that have pitted women who are at an olympic level of training and performance those that have maintained their periods compared to those who purposefully tapered their diet toward competition and lost their menstrual cycle, those who maintain their menstrual cycle outperform, statistically significantly perform better than those who have lost their menstrual cycle. And so the myth that we, we do better when we lose our cycles is not true. And 
And so energy metabolism breaks down and then we start to notice and many women come to me saying, I'm working out harder, I'm eating less, but I'm getting softer. I'm, you know, I don't have the energy. I'm working harder and longer. This is um, often with runners. I'm, I'm training longer and my performance is diminishing. It's, um, you know, I've got brain fog. I can't sleep well. All of these things start to, you know, mood disturbances. They are all from low energy availability. And so you ultimately will not be able to sustain your sport for the long haul. And in the general population for that person who jumps into a weight loss plan, maybe it is a really calorically restricted diet, they're starting to see a lot of weight loss in the short term. Can you dive into what's going on there? What type of weight are they losing in that short phase and how does that translate into the longer term? Well, it's kind of funny. It depends on exactly what they're doing and how much weight they had to lose to begin with. Um, People who are very overweight and obese can lose a lot of weight in a short period of time because the margin between how much food they need to maintain their weight and sustain that weight versus the amount of food that they actually need to be healthy is large. And so it's a it's a wide range. And so in order to, um, you know, if they, if they decrease that even halfway, they lose a lot of weight in the beginning. And that's okay, um, no matter how they do it. In fact, as long as they're getting enough of their, you know, essential nutrients and macronutrients, they're, they're, it's okay. And, and sometimes even the data supports that people who lose more weight early on actually are more successful in, in maintaining a weight loss program and maybe even maintaining their weight loss over time. However, if you have only a smaller amount of weight to lose, let's say, you know, 20 to 30 pounds, your margins of your caloric intake for maintaining weight versus losing weight are much narrower. And so you begin to restrict more so. And then you put yourself in that very low energy availability category. In that instance, if what you've done is, let's say, the very common practice today is removing carbohydrate from the diet. And I mean really removing carbohydrate, not just taking out the fast food and the snack foods and the, and the just starchy foods, but you're still eating fruits and vegetables. If you have removed, if you've gone on a ketogenic diet or you're eating below 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, that can't fuel exercise. That can fuel a couch potato. And so if you're trying to exercise and you're feeling fatigued and you're not sleeping well and you're having a hard time handling your moods, then you're not going to maintain that. You will have lost it initially. Along with the sort of very low-carb diet, you lose a lot of water because as we store carbohydrate in our muscle cells, for each molecule of stored carbohydrate, which we call glycogen, we store three molecules of water right in that muscle cell, which is where we want it so that we're well hydrated and energy metabolism can take off like a rocket when we need it, when we exercise, and protein metabolism can can kick in when we want to recover, repair, and grow muscle, get bigger, faster, stronger, basically. So, so when that water is lost, as we deplete carbohydrate from our body, the scale goes down. But that has no reflection at all to what's happening with our body composition. The only thing that body weight on a scale reflects is our body's mass relationship to gravity. (laughs) (laughs) True. Nothing to do with 
fat loss, fat gain, muscle loss, muscle gain. It just has nothing to do with it. So the fact that we've lost a bunch of weight, it is some fat. It's also a significant amount of water. And depending on how large your body is, you can easily lose 10 pounds of water, um, you know, the larger you are. And the minute you start to eat carbs again, that, you know, nine-tenths of that weight returns. And it's very frustrating. And most people say, well, the heck with it. I'm a failure. I can't do this. And I'm just going to bag it and go back to the fish and chips or whatever else I've always been eating because, because my body is broken and it doesn't work. And in fact, you just have the wrong information. Our bodies will work with the right information. According to some of the recent research, especially in the USA, about 50% of the population are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. So maybe you could start listeners off on the same page and define the terms pre-diabetes and diabetes. Sure. Um, so type 2 diabetes is diagnosed when your fasting blood glucose goes above 7 um, or there is something where your two-hour glucose after a glucose tolerance test is 11.1. So your glucose has got to be pretty high to meet the definition of type 2. Prior to developing type 2, um, there is a condition called prediabetes, which is basically where your blood glucose is high, but not high enough to meet the threshold for type 2 diabetes. Now, what's quite interesting is prediabetes actually is an umbrella term for at least two conditions. So, for example, you could have elevated fasting glucose, and that might be between 6.1 and 6.9. So, remember, type 2 diabetes is 7. You can have a fasting blood glucose of uh, 6.1 to 6.9, but your two-hour glucose is perfectly normal. So, in other mm -hmm. words, all of your management of glucose is perfectly normal when you're fasting. Sorry, it's elevated when you're fasting, but it's perfectly fine when you eat. Now, on the other hand, some people have perfectly normal fasting glucose, but it all goes um, hyperglycemic after they eat. So they can manage glucose in the fasting state, but glucose starts getting elevated after they eat. So prediabetes sort of develops like that. You might have either elevated fasting or elevated two hours. Um, and what's quite interesting for me is it's become apparent those are two different conditions. That's really interesting, yes, because it's definitely something that um, folks tend to just lump prediabetes into one umbrella versus having these two separate conditions. So, um, Nicola, the current guidelines for the prevention of type 2 diabetes in people at high risk are, are based around achieving that weight loss, you know, moderate weight loss, 3 to 7%, um, via dietary changes and increasing physical activity. So, can you outline what the recommended dietary guidelines are at the moment? Yes. I mean, so this has come from... Um, a series of large clinical trials. So really well-executed clinical trials done in China, Finland, um, the United States, um, Sweden, Japan, all over, and India. And what they have shown conclusively is that, like you said, moderate weight loss, 5 to 7%, so that might be 4 to 6 kilos, helps to at least delay or prevent type 2 diabetes. Now, there is only one dietary pattern that has been tested in all of those trials. And that is basically your typical high carbohydrate, high fiber, low fat, low saturated fat diet. Um, and so that's been one of the frustrations for me. And it's an active area of my research that I think we could be offering patients more variety. Um, and let me just reiterate, it's, it's likely that 90% of the effect on prevention is due to weight loss. So it doesn't really matter what diet you lose, it's got to achieve weight loss. Um, but by the same token, I'm also interested in the idea that some foods themselves might also help prevent type 2 and figuring out ways we can package all of that together. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And, you know, last year I had Dr. Jason Fung on and he was, you know, telling stories about his patients coming in who are you know, type 2 diabetic and who need insulin and of course, them recounting to him that of course they're they're gaining more weight by taking this medication. And as you mentioned, you know, ninety percent of this whole story is kind of being able to lose weight. And of course, in the in your paper, you also highlight that 
you know, even in these situations when the participants are monitored, you know, they they lose weight, they start to reverse their condition, but you know, 15 years after the end of these trials, the majority are still going on to develop type two diabetes. So, um, you know, what's going on here? Why are participants struggling to uh, to stick with these plans? Um, I mean, I think the major thing is probably weight regain. Um, if you look at any dietary trial ever done, not just in prevention of type 2, but any weight loss trial, um, even weight loss trials with pharmaceuticals, um, some of which were effective but are no longer available, every trial ever does, people lose weight, they kind of plateau and they regain. Now, that's on average. Obviously, some people can lose weight and keep it off. Um, and really, the secret is individualization. Um, maintaining weight loss is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and the people who succeed, um, and I, t- I take my hat off to them because it is so difficult to achieve, they just manage to find a way that works for them. Um, so I think the first thing that is happening is that people are regaining weight. And so Personally, I think if we can be offering people a greater variety of dietary approaches, um, that might help personalization. Um, The second thing, and this is, again, another active area of my research, the data clearly suggests that moderate weight loss doesn't improve insulin secretion. And we'll call it beta cell function. Um, So let me explain this. So type 2 diabetes, diabetes develops because of two main pathophysiological defects. So the first is insulin resistance. So the tissues, um, whether it's the muscle, the liver, or the adipose tissue, perhaps become resistant to the effects of insulin. The second thing that happens is you get what we call beta cell or dysfunction and then failure. Now your beta cells are the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin. And what we know is they start to decline very early in the development of type 2. So you see that already in prediabetes. And in fact, what defines the transition from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes is beta cell failure. In other words, the pancreas gets to a point where it simply can't produce enough insulin anymore. And what we know is that weight loss of, say, 5 to 7%, yes, it improves insulin sensitivity, but there's no evidence it improves beta cell function. Um, And let me reiterate the importance of this. Like I said, beta cell failure is basically the transition between prediabetes and type 2. And yet we have interventions that actually aren't doing anything to improve beta cell function. Um, So, again, another real interest of mine is looking at ways, uh, diets that can do that. Um, And we've seen recently in type 2 diabetes. So when people get type 2, if they lose a massive amount of weight, um, probably around 15%, um, 13 to 15 kilos, even if you've got type 2, it can restore your beta cells. Um, and, and personally, I think we should be offering this to people at risk of type 2 um, because it would probably be equally as effective. What does the research show in terms of that blood glucose control, whether someone's abstaining from breakfast or eating breakfast, and you know, does it matter if they're actually lean or obese? Yeah, this is something I, I'm really interested in. It's, it's known as the second meal effect, um, whereby your response... So if, if we start off with, with glucose control, first of all, so whenever we eat a meal containing carbohydrates, um, our blood sugar levels or blood glucose concentrations will rise. And they'll peak at about, if we're healthy, then about 30 to 60 minutes, and then they'll fall back down again to pretty much baseline by around two hours. Um, and... The, we need to control that, that glucose in, in, in this tight range. Um, otherwise, we get a number of complications such as cardiovascular disease and, and damage to various blood vessels. And, and ultimately, we can develop type 2 diabetes if, if blood glucose levels rise too high. Yep. Um, and what's interesting is if we consume a meal um, in the morning, let's say we have our breakfast, then our response, our glucose response to lunch, our glucose control is better than if we'd fasted in the morning. And that's known as the the second meal effect. Um, We're not fully aware um, of the mechanisms that that, um, regulate that, um, but it could be related to um, improvements in insulin sensitivity. So that is, um, insulin is the main hormone that that regulates our blood sugar levels. And um, if we're more insulin sensitive, then 
And for the same amount of insulin, we'll get better glucose control. Essentially, our our tissues, such as our muscle, will take up more glucose out of the bloodstream for the same amount of insulin if they're more insulin sensitive. Um, It may also relate to some, some of the liver glucose output. So the liver is constantly putting out glucose into the bloodstream and what this second what might happen with this second meal effect is that we get a greater suppression of glucose output from the liver with our second meal yeah you mentioned insulin there and i think that's definitely one where you know obviously today with about two-thirds of the population being overweight or obese and at least in america some some of the studies showing you know up to 50 percent pre-diabetic or diabetic and so this elevated insulin can you talk a bit about its impact on fat oxidation and what that might um, you know, hinder then for, for, for folks who are trying to lose weight? Yeah. Um, so a high insulin level is, is, or concentration in the blood is, is one of the earliest signs of, um, insulin resistance. Um, and what's happening there is that, um, the pancreas, which is the tissue, the organ that secretes insulin is, is compensating for the um, decrease in insulin sensitivity. So it's secreting more insulin in order to maintain a stable blood sugar level. But the problem with that is that insulin doesn't just affect glucose con- uh, metabolism, it also affects um, fat metabolism and, and many other things too. Um, and what it does in, in regards to fat metabolism is it suppresses fat oxidation and it suppresses lipolysis. So that's the breakdown of fat in in adipose or fat tissue. Um, So it's essentially stimulating the pathways of of fat storage and suppressing the pathways of of fat breakdown. Um, And there there is some confusion in the the literature and definitely some conflict between um, human studies and non-human studies in this area. So um, there's some work by Jim Johnson um, in using rodent models um, that suggests that High insulin concentrations um, accelerate weight gain in certain models, um, and that still may be acting through energy balance. So in those studies, it seems like um, the, the lower insulin level in the blood seems to be associated with a higher physical activity level, or at least a higher energy expenditure in these rodents. There's then some human data, um, and Kevin Hall's done a lot of great work in this area recently, yep. um, where under very tightly controlled conditions, drastically changing the carbohydrate and fat content of the diet in order to manipulate insulin concentrations um, can change, um, sorry, doesn't lead to any differences in weight loss that would be predicted by by energy balance. So essentially, energy balance seems to be key, whereas insulin is, is important for regulating substrate metabolism and directing whether we're oxidizing fat or storing fat or or oxidizing carbohydrate if we're if we're purely interested in at least long-term changes in in body weight and fat mass then energy balance is really key yeah 100 percent, definitely the energy balance being so pivotal and so i guess it begs the question for some folks who are trying to kickstart uh, weight loss or if they're they are struggling with uh, you know pre-diabetes or metabolic syndrome um, is there a potential advantage then for whether it's an intermittent fasting eating strategy or perhaps even a low carb to start the day of, of facilitating a, a caloric reduction then throughout the day? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of intermittent fasting, um, uh, one of our, our PhD students is just writing up his thesis at the moment, and I, I won't steal his thunder, but he's got some <laughs> interesting data <laughs> coming out there too, um, especially in relation to, to physical activity levels on days when people fast versus days when, when people are eating. Um, but if, if we focus on, on the role of breakfast here and, and that fasting in the morning, um, certainly if, if we um, skip breakfast, we don't tend to, at least within the next 24 hours, compensate with any increase in, in energy intake. Um, but we do seem to reduce our, our energy expenditure. Um, that is at least when we're, we're not really aware or conscious of what we're doing. Maybe we can do something about that, though, and, and we might want to con- consider performing exercise sessions in the morning. Um, then we're fixing, essentially fixing or prescribing our energy expenditure um, because the, the role, the way in which breakfast is regulating energy expenditure and physical activity isn't through changing the amount of exercise people are doing. It's mainly the, the spontaneous type of physical activity that we're, we're not really conscious of. So just little things like fidgeting and so on, which we could potentially offset if we're aware of that. So if you are looking to lose weight and and I think there are there are various strategies that you can use, and it's probably a case of of trying a few ones and seeing which, which one 
you you find easiest to adhere to. Um, but if if fasting in the morning is one that you'd like to try, then um, just being aware that your physical activity levels might be lower and you might have a propensity to, to be a little bit uh, lazier, if you like, in the morning, for want of a, a better term. Mm-hmm. But at least you know that and you can do something about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously you hit on something crucial there, which is that an adherence component of all this in terms of whether it's weight loss, better health, um, you know, you've touched on it a little bit, but again, how important is that individual's preference when it comes to whether it's breakfast or the nutrition strategy that they choose to, to apply? Yeah, I, I think it's critical to both uh, the exercise and, and, and diet. So clearly it, energy balance is simple on the one hand, but it's so difficult to adhere to in, at least in the long term. Um, so if people like to follow a particular diet, whether it's low carbohydrate, ketogenic, or higher in protein, um, higher in carbohydrate, low fat, as long as they can adhere to an energy deficit on that diet, then that's probably a good one for them to follow. Um, it seems, and, and um, Susan Jeb's done some great work on this, that there are actually quite minimal differences in the metabolic effects of different diets as long as weight loss is occurring. So if you take someone who um, has obesity, for example, then their metabolic health probably isn't isn't going to be very good, or at least in the long term, their prognosis isn't, isn't going to be great. If they're losing weight almost by any means, then their metabolic health will improve. And there are actually very minor differences between the types of diets. And, and you can probably say the same about exercise too. People often ask me, well, what, what's the best type of exercise to do? And the, probably the best answer you can give to that is the one that you're going to do regularly. People want to see this dramatic and quick um, transformation in terms of body composition. So when we see some of these you know, dramatic caloric deficits, what's the potential pitfalls for people in terms of trying to lose weight? That's a great question. You know, and and this is an interesting one because there's some research showing that when you have an overweight individual who's significantly overweight, probably obese, um, faster weight loss initially does predict success long term. But that's not the case when you're dealing with someone who's just slightly overweight or an athlete trying to lose weight or someone who's just trying to maintain a leaner physique, you know. Uh, and, and, and if you think about it, that makes sense. You know, when you have Everest to climb, uh, being able to make some quick progress makes the rest of it feel doable. Uh, and taking these small steps when you're looking up and going, man, that's a tall mountain, can be quite discouraging. Um, so certainly there, there, there's a time and a place for faster weight loss. But when, I, when I'm talking faster weight loss, I don't, I don't mean biggest loser stuff, you know. And, sure. uh, you know, as a personal trainer, one of the most frustrating things is when you have someone come in and you give them, you set some realistic expectations and they're, so far from from what the person is expecting as to be discouraging. Um, you know, when someone watches, you know, these contestants on Biggest Loser just because I'm picking on them right now, losing, you know, 10 to 20 pounds a week to start, and you tell them, hey, we can go go at a good clip and lose two to three pounds per week at the start, you know, that that's that's really fast if you think about it. I mean, you're losing more than 10 pounds a month at that speed. Absolutely. And and you know, and and that probably should slow down over time. Uh, but when they're expecting that per week, uh, I think that can be discouraging. So I, I think it's really important to to set realistic expectations to know uh, the, the the probable uh, issues of with trying to lose that fast. You know, if you are indeed losing as fast as you possibly can, it's just simply not sustainable. Uh, and if you look at the hard facts, which are pretty discouraging, um, almost everybody can lose weight. Uh, the problem is, is they gain it back. You know, within within one to two years, we're looking at like a 90% recidivism, basically, of going back to or above the starting body weight uh, that, that people lost. And I think a large part of this is that the, the fitness industry pushes um, quick fixes, and it doesn't do a good job of promoting lifestyle change. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to really kind of conceptualize early on that, hold on, my entire life, I now plan to be eating healthy and exercising. Uh, it's much more easy just for the human brain to focus on the next 12 weeks. And if you're going to only focus on 12 weeks, well, you better damn make make sure you make a difference. But the problem is, is that there's no game plan after those 12 weeks. You tend to just slide backwards. And you combine that with adaptive thermogenesis and increases in hunger from being restricted. And sometimes you see people end up worse off than when they started. 
Yeah, it's definitely, especially in the general population with the environment being laden with so many hyperpalatable foods, too. once that hunger kicks up, it's pretty difficult to, uh, to offset that. Now, if we're talking bodybuilders or figure competitors and we're, you know, how do they game plan things when they're so many months out of a competition? Is there a general rule of thumb in terms of, you know, the amount of months and again, the, the, the weight loss per week? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, bodybuilding is, is an interesting thing because the, the standards for competition have changed over time. You know, if you were to look back even a couple decades, the standard length diet would be like about 12 weeks. Um, and then a long diet would be 16 weeks. And you still see that sometimes in the drug using side of the sport, but among the, uh, the tested side of the sport, when you're dealing with uh, drug-free lifters uh, and competitors, that is typically a recipe for, for not getting lean enough, or if you do get lean enough, going through hell to get there. Uh, and gotcha. typically not, not showing up on stage looking full with all the muscle mass you started with. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's important to realize that the difference between bodybuilding in the 1980s was that no one even really knew that glutes were striated, you know, in, in male bodybuilding. And nowadays the standard for conditioning is so high that, that you really have to have a, the complete absence of visible body fat to do well. Um, that means you need to have striations in your glutes, veins in, in, in your abs and in, in your inner thigh complete separation everywhere. And, and what that means is that when you look at someone, your standard fitness model on, on the cover of a magazine, uh, that if they're a male, they're probably 10 to 15 pounds over stage weight is, which is surprising given how good they look. Sure. Uh, and that was a, and that was about what you would need the kind of shape you'd need to get in to compete in say the seventies or eighties. So there's, uh, just more fat to lose, uh, to be competitive. And that means you need to take longer to do it. And, as you get leaner and leaner, losing fat becomes harder and harder. Because if you think about it, you know, when you're, uh, let's say you competed 170 pounds and you start your diet at, uh, you know, 200 pounds, you've got 30 pounds to lose. But those one pound of those 30 pounds is a small percentage when you weigh 200. But when you're 175, losing one pound is a fifth of the body fat you need to lose. So expecting to be able to do it in the same amount of time and, and expecting that to have the same effects on your body because fat is not inert tissue. You know, it, it produces uh, hormones and it has a large impact on things like satiety, uh, things like hormonal production in your body, um, this, the nervous system, all, all kinds of stuff. So uh, the, the way you feel at the end of a diet, uh, even when you do things right, uh, for a bodybuilder is, is, is pretty miserable at times. So game planning is very important. So I think the, the average length of a diet for uh, a male competitive bodybuilder these days, is about six months. And for women, it tends to be more like seven. Um, if they're depending on the division they compete in, not all of them require you to get as lean, but for getting maximally lean, say if you're a female bodybuilder, uh, or a male bodybuilder, we're looking at six or seven months or so. Um, and that means, okay, well then there's going to be a recovery period because this is pretty rough on the body. And that typically takes about, you know, two to three months before everything is, you, you start to feel human again. And if you think about it, that, that leaves you with, you know, four months before the next season starts before you have to diet again. So you, you see a trend these days of people competing every other year or taking long off seasons. And really the folks who, uh, should be competing every year or who, who can get away with it. Uh, and who still do well are, are the pros who have, you know, really kind of built built their physique for the most part. And it's more about retaining a title um, and, you know, only being able to make small improvements anyway. Uh, it's not the end of the world if, if they don't have much of an off-season. And they've also refined their diets. So they can be more efficient, effective, and, and they're good at getting uh, recovered quickly. So I think there's a, a big shift that's, that's occurred, uh, especially in the, the natural side of the sport, in the last uh, 10, 15 years as the requirements for, for success have, have, have become more extreme. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially well, obviously the, the stress involved in, in terms of, of cutting and, and, and training at that level. And if, you know, shifting gears here to a different macro in terms of carbohydrates, um, obviously a, a strategy that can be employed is reducing carbohydrates sometimes significantly, but what are some of the consequences of, of insufficient carbon take if, if athletes or bodybuilders are still training uh, you know, in, intensely and trying to grow? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, carbohydrate is, um, is important to some degree for bodybuilders. I, I would say it's not as important as you as for an athlete with a much higher energy expenditure. You know, if you are a soccer player or if you're a marathon runner, uh, the kind of carbohydrate intake and also the, 
the, the subsequent energy intake from taking in a high level of carbohydrates is going to be a lot higher uh, and should be a lot higher if you really want to maximize performance based on what we know. Now, for a bodybuilder, sure, they are anaerobic athletes. You know, you're probably training anywhere in the, you know, 4 to 20 rep range for, for most of the time. And some of that will certainly deplete glycogen, uh, glycogen being the, the, you know, the stored form of, of, of carbohydrate in humans. Um, and, you know, depending on how much volume you're doing, you know, uh, a weight training session can deplete, say, you know, maybe 10 to 30% of the local muscle glycogen. Um, and that, that is enough to induce fatigue. Uh, now, you might think, oh, that, that's a big deal. But the thing is, is you're also not typically training the same muscle group again, you know, within the same day. You know, if, if you have a normal day of eating, you wake up, uh, you have breakfast the next day, and then you go train again, that that local muscle glycogen is probably completely, if not all the way, replenished if you're on a normal diet. Uh, now, when you're dieting, that that's a different scenario, you know, because you have a obligatory reduction of calories, that means you're going to have to find somewhere for it to cut from. And carbohydrates is, is often one of, but not the only culprit. Typically it's, you know, both fat and carbohydrates that have to come down at some point in a diet. Yep. Um, and so, so then, then you're dealing with, okay, I'm, I'm, I am depleting glycogen in training and I am, uh, restricting carbohydrate to some degree. So maybe I am running into some issues with glycogen. Um, even though I'm only training, let's say, each muscle group two to three times per week, I'm kind of in this chronically depleted state. And especially when it comes to the lower body, I'm also doing cardio, typically, at some point. Uh, so that, that's why it's important to modulate the intensity of cardio, to, to kind of think about how it fits in with the rest of your training. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of doing um, a lot of like high-intensity cardio for bodybuilders uh, because of the potential interference effect on training, especially during dieting. So uh, I think there's a time and place for some of it, but it needs to be carefully planned. Um, and for this reason, you want to try to, for the most part, diet on as many carbohydrates as you can with a big emphasis on you. Because some <laughs> people... Personalized approach becomes key, right? Exactly. You know, I've, I've had clients who that means, you know, they're, they're getting down to under 100 grams. I've had clients who are on their low days above 300 grams. And that's not just due to... Uh, to body mass or activity levels. There are definitely individual differences. Um, you know, we've got a, a fair amount of research now that shows that uh, insulin resistance or sensitivity uh, can predict whether or not you would be more successful on a lower or higher carb diet um, and co-committantly a uh, lower or higher fat intake, vice versa kind of thing. Now, not to say that I think many bodybuilders are insulin resistant. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. You know, they're, they're typically healthy, lean, health conscious people who are quite active. Um, but there's a lot of things that goes into that beyond just those factors. You know, your, your age, uh, your genetic history, uh, your ethnicity, even these are all things that can affect the way you metabolize carbohydrates. So, um, we can't really predict very well, uh, whether or not you would respond better to one or the other, but there's always trial and error. And, uh, you know, typically that means you're going to be somewhere in the range of, you know, a gram per pound up to maybe two or three grams per pound, depending on the individual, uh, in, in the, in say the off season, and then maybe shift that down a little bit, uh, another half a, half a gram per pound or so, or, or, or a full gram per pound when you're dieting, um, with some, some reduction in fat as well, but you can only go so low for each one of the macronutrients. You, you probably don't want to be cutting protein. Um, and you don't want to cut carbs so low that you end up sacrificing your training quality and your muscle fullness. Um, and you also don't want to cut your fat too low because then you start to have issues with, fat-soluble vitamins. You can have issues with uh, hormone production. You can have issues uh, with with just mouthfeel and satiety and not feeling uh, and having adherence problems with, with low-fat diets. But um, as long as it's a temporary period, you can get away with a drastic cut in any one of those areas. So it's important to kind of periodize your diet. I use intermittent diet breaks as, as a way to get around this uh, high days and low days so that, you know, we might go five, five low days in a row, then and two high days to replenish glycogen and, and just replenish sanity uh, before diving in again. For sure. and, and these seem to be pretty important for, for getting through a diet that has to last as long as it does. So, you know, circling back to the concept of periodized body composition, is about basically an athlete's doing it in a healthy manner and has all those um, nutritional fundamentals in place, how can that actually potentially help the athlete in terms of getting leaner, you know, as the years go by in their career? Yeah, I think optimizing body composition is a, is a career project. 
And I've seen again and again and again the athletes, and there, there's indirect data to support this, the athletes that have um, adequate and normal continuous sex hormones, testosterone and estrogen progesterone for females, um, because they aren't in energy deficits, they are the leanest athletes that we work with. And so um, there's a really good classic paper, uh, uh, Dutes et al., Dan Bernadotte is a senior author. It's 2001 uh, MSSE, I, I believe, off the top of my head, where they looked at world-class elite females in middle distance, long distance, rhythmic gymnastics, and just uh, classic normal gymnastics. And in that paper, they showed um, the middle distance runners were closest to energy balance, and they were the leanest athletes. Interesting. The athletes, the rhythmic gymnasts on average were at a negative 600 calories per day, energy balance, and they had the highest percent body fat. And even though they were, quote unquote, probably trying the hardest to lean out. And again, evolutionary biology makes really good sense. It's only recently where we've evolved to not have um, famines <laughs> yeah. uh, as, human, as humans and actually as mammals. We're impressively good at putting on body fat to survive famines. Uh, when we go into starvation mode, uh, the body very quickly within, uh, within a week starts to shut down basal metabolic rate and starts to change the hormonal milieu and endocrine system to go into a storage mode rather than an oxidation mode. Uh, that's great for famines. Um, our modern world doesn't feature many famines anymore. So, uh, not so great for performance, right? Correct. And so the leanest athletes I have, the shredded athletes I have, they're the ones with uh, normal menstrual cycles and, and the males with, with good testosterone values and they're, they're eating five, six, seven, eight times a day, whatever's required. Um, and they get leaner and leaner as their um, careers progress right up into their 30s. And uh, uh, I just, it, it's just, again, it's, uh, it's just a constant healthy approach to body comp. The thing to flip out of that though, as well for us as practitioners and coaches, it's really important that, to realize that you also can't judge a book by its cover. Because of the study I just mentioned and, and, and other data, indirect and direct, the athletes with the highest percent body fat were the ones in the largest negative calorie balance. The shredded athletes were the ones that were the most healthy. And so I'd, I've just I've heard comments before, oh, look at that athlete. Oh, she, she must be having an eating disorder. And I'm like, you don't know that. She might be the healthiest athlete here. Exactly. And, and it's just really important to not um, judge a book by its cover, to, to understand all these confounding factors um, before making rash judgments or assumptions. So I just, I'll leave it there. For sure. And then, you know, another really interesting thing in the, in the study was the ability to maintain lean muscle mass mass whilst getting leaner and you know you noted the mid-thigh girth during the competition phases um, being able to maintain that and obviously as that translates to performance is that um, just a, a an end result of being able to do this um, you know really well and taking all that time to be periodizing this appropriately yeah correct uh, you know a lot of textbooks talk about the fact that um, if you're leaning out or losing body weight you can't concurrently add muscle mass and, and a lot of times uh, textbooks are 10 to 15 years behind because um, that, that is not true, especially in the elite of elite athletes or in extreme training environments. And the first paper to really definitively disprove that um, was, was this Sam Mettler um, with Kevin Tipton, a protein expert uh, at the time out of Birmingham, England, where they showed... Uh, um, slightly higher protein intakes and strategic use of protein throughout the day, along with um, quite aggressive strength and conditioning and, and training program, while in a pretty profound caloric deficit re resulted in subjects that lost 5% of their body weight, but in the high protein group, concurrently added muscle mass. And uh, again, that defies most test textbook logic or what textbooks have, um, but uh, any of us in the field, we've seen that. And uh, there's now, you know, a series of papers that have come out. Uh, Ina Garth, for example, out of Norway, has some great papers in this area showing that, yeah, in the elite athletes with pretty aggressive training programs and uh, an increase uh, in, in protein intake when leaning out can really help maintain muscle mass and in some situations even gain muscle mass. 
another key element of, of my, um, the nine-year case study um, was that um, the, the general competition body weight, uh, competition phase body weight um, uh, for Hillary uh, for, for the subject in, in, in this study was, was completely unchanged throughout her career. Uh, however, the partitioning of that changed um, throughout her career in that nine years earlier, um, uh, the body weight was still around 46, 46 and a half kilos. Um, she's very short, just, just to put that in perspective. <laughs> um, world-class endurance athletes are, are incredibly petite. Um, but nine years later, she was the same body weight, but had an extra kilo of muscle mass on her. Um, That's amazing. So another, she was leaner than ever. And most of that was our return from Switzerland here to uh, the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific, where she was able to get on a proper, um, with a proper SNC coach. Uh, I was writing her SNC program in Switzerland, and I, I, I'm an endurance guy. I, it was a program that just kept her healthy, and it did, but it was not a performance uh, program. And um, it was phenomenal to see late in her career, well into her 30s, um, after a child, uh, her still putting on lean muscle mass and running better than ever. So, um, yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of lessons out of that case study. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic read, and uh, definitely include that in the show notes here. And uh, definitely want to respect your time here as well, Trent. Really appreciate you taking the time today. And if if we maybe we shift back out, you know, just kind of thirty thousand feet for for the recreational marathoner. So a lot of the uh, you know trainers or nutritionists or even docs listening in, you know, will often see clients who are you know want to run a marathon to maybe improve their health, but they often have you know. 10, 15, 20 pounds that they're also trying to lose during that event. Um, and sometimes their fueling strategy can look a lot like uh, Chip Choge's or an elite runner versus someone who's actually also trying to lose weight. Can you talk a little bit about the metabolic cost of running with, with extra body weight and maybe some of the nuances on fueling strategies there? Yeah, certainly. I, I think, um, yeah, I think there's misconceptions that um, everything the elites do, uh, if I'm a four-hour marathoner, I should do. So um, first and foremost, um, in running specifically, running is a weight-dependent endurance sport. It's not like rowing or swimming or cycling where uh, your weight's supported by either either the water or some piece of equipment. So your risk for joint and or bone or neuromuscular overload is much greater in running than, than in the other sports. And, and that's primarily why, um, triathletes and rowers and cyclists can do a 25 to 30 hour training week. But even your top Kenyan marathoners can only run physically run in terms of their neuromuscular and joints and, and muscles 10 to 12 hours a week. So that's, that's point number one when you, and then if, if you're, if you're profoundly overweight, that puts a lot more stress on the joints and, and everything else. So those joints can handle it. But it's really important in the training program to take things incredibly slow early. I see way too many recreational runners uh, wanting to check the marathon box um, within a few months of starting a running program. And I think that there's certain high throughput running classes that overemphasize the marathon way too quickly. And people hate it. They get broken. They get injured. They limp through their marathon. Um, they can brag about it at the water cooler on Monday but they hate running and that's it. They'd, they'd never go back to it. Um, if you're, yeah, if you're 20, 30 pounds overweight and you want to get into running, um, a marathon is something you might consider in four to five years. And from a neuromuscular perspective of just slowly loading the joints, you might just start with a whole bunch of hiking uphill and downhill. Then you might start into some, like a little bit of running with hiking. Then you might start to get into some workouts with hiking. And guess what will happen? Your body weight will come down safely. You won't, you won't, you have much lower injury rates. Um, most of our society, unfortunately, is not patient enough to do those types of things. And they, you know, they want to take the 16 week marathon program and, and, and have a holiday to New York, right? So, sure. so that's step one from a neuromuscular perspective. And, and, you know, I, at that point, feelings are relevant. You're going so slow that 100% of fueling can be achieved by um, um, uh, carbohydrate and fat that you've stored in your body. Um, even a very lean individual has enough body fat energy for about 20 to 25 marathons in a row. And when exercise intensity is that low and it's more hiking or very slow running, 
um, you, you don't need any fueling at that point. You don't need to be sucking back carbs. You need water. Hydration is still important. Definitely. Um, but, but it's just, it's way overdone. The very pointy end of things, you know, after three or four years and your body comp's gotten back down into a place that's good and you can survive two hour long runs and you, you, you're then at the point where you think you're going to start your first marathon um, yes, some fueling during that marathon will be important. And yes, practicing that, um, will help you get through the marathon. Um, that says you probably need about half the amounts per hour that the elite athlete does. So, you know, maybe a gel or two gels an hour, no, no more than that, because, because you're moving at a much slower rate, um, you have a much higher dependence on fat oxidation and uh, therefore, you don't need near as much um, external carbohydrate to support the race distance. The other thing I would recommend in the space as being a marathon coach as well, or, or part-time, I dabble, nice. is that I think that there's diminishing returns um, once you get out past about two and a half to three hour long runs. Um, the elites don't do that because, you know, they can run a marathon in a long run in two and a half hours and it's pretty easy for them. Very few elites run past two and a half hours of duration. Um, however, if your goal marathon is four to five hours, <laughs> um, there's a gap. And so what I usually recommend there, and it's more from a psychological perspective, is that a few times in the build, if you have a four or five hour marathon goal, uh, get outside um, do your two to three hour long run, but then tack on two hours of walking so that psychologically you, you've had a few four or five hour bouts outside just from a headspace perspective. And For then sure. on race day, you're standing on the starting line. You've done it a couple of times, albeit maybe with 20 or 25% of your long run is walking, but you, you've done a, a few four or five hour bouts. But in those bouts, you're only running for two and a half to three hours. And, and I think, again, from a neuromuscular perspective, it's safer. You won't get as won't lower your risk of injury. You'll recover better out of those long runs. Um, but psychologically, you're still ready on race day to handle um, four or five hours out, out on the course. So that was a long answer, but uh, hopefully it, your listeners um, yeah, get some value out of that. I hope you enjoyed this installment of Rewind. Again, you can check out the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast for all the links to the original episodes. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, definitely reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. And if you're enjoying the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, your favorite podcasting platform, leave us a review, share with friends. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Fantastic. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.